Are you interested in a true crime podcast with a different point of view with hosts who have seen the justice system from the inside? Then you should check out Alice and Brett and their show, The Prosecutors. In every episode, Alice and Brett bring a unique perspective as full-time prosecutors to the most famous and debated true crime mysteries, whether it's John Benet Ramsey, Maura Murray, Scott Peterson, or the Delphi murders, they dig deep to bring you the details that you won't hear anywhere else. The Prosecutor's Podcast is about more than just storytelling. Alex and Brett will walk you through the legal problems lurking behind every case. They break down the complexities of the criminal justice system with a little bit of humor and personal touch. And it's not just true crime. They bring the same training and approach that they've learned as prosecutors to classic mysteries like the Dialtov Pass incident and the ghost ship Marie Celeste. So if you're looking for a true crime podcast with a different point of view, a different approach, The Prosecutors is the podcast for you. I listen to this one myself. Highly recommend. Britt and Alice are great. You can find The Prosecutors wherever you find your favorite podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stove Lake Media. Igniting conversation. 35-year-old Nicole Brown Simpson and 25-year-old Ron Goldman were found brutally murdered on June 12th of 1994. The evidence found at the scene pointed to Nicole's famous husband, O.J. Simpson, as the prime suspect. Join Jamie and John in this special two-part series as they discuss the crime, evidence, and the bizarre police chase with O.J.'s famous white Ford Bronco. They will go in-depth on what the media called the trial of the century. This is True Crime Cast. This is True Crime Cast. Jamie here, and for the first time ever, recording remotely with John. Jamie, how you doing, man? I'm good. Um... We are just to be clear, we are both healthy, so that's not the problem. Um, I'm in a different part of the world right now, <laughs> so <laughs> you say that like you're in Europe or Asia. I'm about four hours away from where we normally record, so can't be in the booth, but uh, I am in a garage by myself, and it is the most quiet I've had in like three days, so I think I'm going to stay here. I think it's uh. It's just interesting. It makes me thankful that we haven't had to do this throughout quarantine due to the technical kind of issues we've had. So uh, I think this is a good setup. Hopefully the sound quality is up to our normal expectations. And I know that the case is going to be. This case is amazing. I'll be honest, Jamie. I texted earlier in the day and I was like, I can't record today. I've got some stuff going on. And then when I kind of did some more research and uh, looked over the script again. I was like, no, I can blow off my family. I'm recording this episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think so. And this goes back to one of the most memorable crimes of, I guess, my childhood. I guess you were a child too. 
I, you know, I was going to say that I remember where I was the day of 9-11. And then for this case in particular, I remember the day I remember where I was and what I was doing the day that I saw OJ Simpson's white Bronco going down the interstate in LA. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Cool, John. Do we have anybody to thank before we get started digging into the case? We do. We have a very special thank you to two folks that joined us on Patreon. The first one is Morgan. Came in at $25 level, Jamie. What's she going to get for 25 bucks? Uh, Hopefully you remember. <laughs> I think she gets a coffee mug. and She gets a coffee mug. Morgan, thank you so much for $25, and that mug will be coming to you after the first of next month. Lorit came in at $20 level, so Lorit gets to... Uh, help us pick a case that we can research and present to you all. So, Laura, thank you so much for coming in at the $20 level. Yeah, we appreciate all of our patrons. There's extra stuff over there. If you're interested, you should go to patreon.com and check that out. But first, we have an awesome case. So, John, why don't you go ahead and get us rolling? On June 12th, 1994, two people were stabbed in brutal fashion in Los Angeles, California. Now, as police began to piece together the events that led to their murders, the trail of evidence quickly led them to one of America's favorite sons, an athlete and actor who was an A-list celebrity. The investigation captured international attention and is widely believed to be the trial of the century. Jamie, I remember back then when this trial was going on, my dad had an old VHS, uh, like a, uh, what's it called? <laughs> VHS VCR? player VCR, VCR. I yeah. could I could not think of the word my dad had an old VCR every morning before he went to work he put a tape in and recorded all day long the trial so I do remember the trial was a big deal so we're going to explore the OJ Simpson murder trial we're going to talk about OJ's infamous Bronco pursuit and how a single bloody glove captured the world's attention throughout much of the 1990s yeah, before we uh, start digging into the details, I want this is going to be a two-parter. Uh, in case you didn't read the description, we're going to go kind of through the uh, through the case up to the arrest here. And our next episode is going to be more about the trial. I mean, we could have months and episodes, and I don't know. There was like a ten-part, ten-hour documentary that won an Academy Award about OJ. There's so much out there, but we're going to try to squeeze it into two episodes. In case you don't know, O.J. Simpson was a star football player uh, at USC in college. He played for the Buffalo Bills, like an all-time level NFL running back. He ended, ended his career with the San Francisco 49ers, but very much uh, one of the leaders of the pack of of professional athletes during his time. He also went into sports broadcasting when he was finished with sports. He was an actor. He was in the Naked Gun movies which were hilarious, and his role was really good in that. I remember him more from that than I do football, just because of my age. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, it, it, it was good stuff. Um, and, and he was up and coming and acting, and he had a lot going his way. And he met his wife, Nicole Brown, in 1977. At the time, she was a waitress at like an upscale restaurant in L.A., and he went there quite a bit and eventually asked her out. Uh, they both were really good-looking people. They seemed kind of like, I don't know, like the perfect couple. And tabloid magazines were following them around, and they were really like the hot point of conversation. Within a few years, 
OJ would ask Nicole Brown to marry him. Now, before this, he had to divorce his previous wife, which I think is of note. But together, Nicole Brown Simpson and OJ Simpson had two kids in the 80s. They were married for about seven years, and she filed for divorce in 1992. Now, the picture painted by Nicole Brown Simpson and her legal team was very much in contrast to what we knew about O.J. Simpson. He was a very outgoing, kind of jovial person and a real personality. And she said that he was actually really physically and verbally abusive to her. She had reported some of these instances, and there were some uh, domestic violence check-ins that police came out there to do. But they get out there, John, and they see O.J. Simpson and... In L.A. at that time, I, I seriously doubt that police are going to be too forceful with that investigation, right? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I think it is like he was getting some special treatment just because of who he was, and he was kind of a bigwig, right? Yeah. In one instance, he actually broke her arm. She went to the emergency room but told, her, told them that she had just fallen off a bike. Uh, he had reported that they had had altercations. Um, but family members would say that he would berate her and physically hit her even in public. She would later document over 60 different times when he abused her. And like I said, she didn't report a few of those. There were just eight times. I say just eight ones too many, eight times when she reported some of this abuse and he was actually taken into custody at some point, but no charges were really filed. By all accounts, uh, he did not want to get divorced when she filed for divorce. He kept fighting to stay with her. Even after it was finalized, he supposedly stalked her. He There's this one report, John, of him sneaking over to her house and watching her in bed with her new boyfriend. It sounds That's like... That's creepy. Yeah, everything about his approach to this relationship, if all these claims are to be re- believed and... Based on everything I read and hear, they are backed up by evidence and several people that saw these things. It really was an unhealthy relationship all the way around. He threatened her often and told her that he was going to kill her if he caught her with another man. She was so scared by his threats and just kind of how violent she had seen him be that shortly after their divorce, she drafted a will to make sure that if she did pass away in unfortunate circumstances, that her kids would be taken care of. And it was in June of 1994, less than a week before her grisly murder, that Nicole Brown Simpson called a Los Angeles battered woman shelter and said that she was considering moving there because she felt like it would be safer than staying in her own home. She reported around this time that a set of her keys had gone missing, and she suspected that O.J. Simpson was the one who had stolen them from her. So, Jamie, it sounds like their relationship was just awful. I mean, there's a lot of domestic violence, so there's a lot of red flags going on. Well, it gets worse. So, shortly after midnight on June 13, 1994, there's a resident who's walking through the condominium complex that he shared with these folks. And this was, of course, in L.A. And that's when he found a dog with bloody paws. Now, this dog apparently didn't have any injuries, but he had blood all over his feet. So the resident took the dog for a walk and the dog immediately pulled him to a gory scene where they discovered two bodies. Now the dog later 
was to be discovered as Brown's dog and was likely one of the only witnesses or the only witness to this murder. So when police arrived, they found Nicole Brown face down at the base of her front porch. The door to her house was open, but showed no signs of any forced entry. Now, police reported a huge pool of blood, but Brown's feet were completely clean. So they theorized that this was the intended murder victim and the first person to be killed. And I mean, Jamie, to me, that makes sense. If it was the second victim, you would believe that in like some kind of self-defense, this person would have blood on their feet, right? So it makes sense to me that their theory, their theory holds up to me at least is what I'm trying to say. Brown had been stabbed in the head and neck and apparently tried to fight off her attacker. The final stab wound ruptured the, an artery in the back of her neck, causing her death. So police noticed a bruise on her back and believed that after the other victim was killed, the murderer returned to Brown, knelt on her back, and slit her throat. Now that wound, Jamie, was so severe that it nearly decapitated her. The other victim was Ron Goldman. Now, Ron was a close friend of Nicole Brown's, and he was found near her body. He had also been stabbed repeatedly in the head and neck. Critically important were that the items that were found left near Goldman's body. So one of those was a blue knit cap and an extra large left-handed leather glove. Now, police were confident that these were left behind by the killer and recognized them as some of the most valuable pieces of evidence of this case. Finally, there was an envelope near Goldman's body that contained a pair of eyeglasses, which also they were believed to belong to the murderer. There were bloody shoe prints that led away from the scene of the murders and indicated that the murderer left through a back gate near Brown's condo. There was also blood from the killer, and police were able to reconstruct the scene, and they believed that to be from the left hand of the murderer. Shortly before the bodies were discovered, O.J. Simpson was to be on a flight to Chicago for a convention. Testimony from the limo driver, who was supposed to be the one to pick up Simpson, indicated that Simpson was not home about 1030 the night of the murders. Now, the driver and a Simpson friend who lived on his estate would later indicate that Simpson was extremely agitated that night. So, Jamie, there's some other stuff from this limo driver. The limo driver said that there were four bags that Simpson brought and he refused to allow the driver to handle one of the bags and the limo driver saw him at the airport, throw a bag in the trash can. Now he would only check three bags for his flight. So police believe that the fourth bag contained bloody clothes, the murder weapon and other key evidence that led back to the Goldman and Brown murders. Back in LA investigators had identified the two murder victims When the woman's identity came back as Nicole Brown Simpson, LAPD administrators sought to notify Simpson of her death. Now, upon arriving at his home, detectives repeatedly buzzed the mansion from the gate, but no one ever answered that. They could see Simpson's Ford Bronco parked rather awkwardly in the drive, and they were able to see blood on the side of the vehicle. Now, In a move that would later be criticized, police entered Simpson's estate and they said that they entered because they were worried somebody inside was injured because of the blood on the car. As detectives walked the grounds, they located a bloody glove. 
Now, it matched the left-handed bloody glove left at the crime scene by the murderer. Now, police had probable cause, and the detectives sought and received a search warrant to search O.J. Simpson's home for the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. After the break, you'll hear how police ultimately tracked down O.J. Simpson and how that pursuit led to one of the most watched car chases in history. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Guys, if you haven't already tried it, John and I really want to tell you about our other podcast. Jamie, it's called Bless Their Hearts, and it is probably the most fun that I have recording a podcast ever. We try to keep it lighthearted. And we talk about stuff that is just ridiculous and silly, but it's a lot of fun. It's a great stress reliever and pretty much the opposite of True Crime Cast. We're going to play a quick clip to let you know a sample of what Bless Their Hearts is about. I'll wipe grease on my jeans, not I won't wipe cheese on them. Don't be ridiculous, sure John. Cheese, Cheetos dust comes out once you wipe it on. I think it's like orange for life. Yeah. Like, John, <laughs> yeah. that makes perfect sense. <laughs> you wear the right color, boy. You can eat Cheetos all day long. Nobody ever know it. So go ahead over to iTunes and download, subscribe, and start listening to Bless Their Hearts today. After receiving the search warrant, it didn't take police long to find out that OJ was in Chicago like you had mentioned earlier. They called to tell him about Brown's death, and they would later report that he seemed highly upset. He seemed emotional, knowing that she had passed away. But they were a little suspicious uh, because he asked a few questions about how she was murdered, if they knew why she was murdered and asked some questions about the investigation, but didn't even ask about his kids who in theory should have been with their mom that night. The day after the murders, police went to visit Simpson in person. They know his injuries consistent with defensive wounds on his hands. Although he would claim that he had cut his hand in the hotel room in Chicago when he was distraught at the news of the murders. Police told him they'd found blood in and around his Bronco. Simpson then changed his story and said that he cut his finger while he was in the vehicle. He voluntarily gave police a blood sample to determine if it was his own blood in the car. With the evidence against O.J. Simpson building, he started searching for legal representation. He hired Robert Shapiro, one of the best-known defense attorneys in the country, just two days after the murders. Another one of his principal attorneys was... Robert Kardashian, right? That's the Kardashian family from Keeping Up with the Kardashians. That's the dad of that family. Around this time, the test results came back from the blood in the Bronco, 
And it was indeed OJ's blood prompting the DA to hold off on filing murder charges because they had evidence pointing his direction, but they did not have the victim's blood on his car, which is what they were looking for. His defense team started uh, talking to the media, trying to set up a narrative that Simpson was highly depressed due to the loss of Nicole and that they were hoping this would be useful in trial if it came to that. On June 17th, five days after the murders, they went ahead and charged O.J. Simpson with two counts of first-degree murder after DNA results tied him to the crime scene. Police notified Simpson's attorneys that he had until 11 a.m. to turn himself in. They extended that until noon, believing that somebody as famous as O.J. would never attempt to run away. Like, he can't hide. He can't go to the airport and not be seen as O.J., so in the few hours that he had, Simpson updated his will. He wrote some letters to his kids that he sealed in envelopes. He called his mom, and he had kind of all of his attorneys and some of his friends over to the house. More than a 1,000 people were gathered outside the police station so that they could see O.J. come in and be uh, put in jail. Media across the country and internationally were on scene to start running with the story. We get to around 2 p.m., John, and police told the media that they still hadn't seen O.J. And that at this point, since he had missed his deadline to surrender, that he was a fugitive on the run. At 5 p.m., again, five hours after he was supposed to turn himself into police, Kardashian read a letter that Simpson had written earlier that morning. It was written specifically to the public and included language like, I can't go on. It asked the media not to bother his kids. And it said that was his quote-unquote final wish. He denied in the letter any involvement in the murders, but most people thought it was a suicide note and worried that he was going to be ending his own life instead of turning himself into the police. In one of the most famous instances of the 1990s, Simpson's Ford Bronco was spotted shortly before 6 p.m. And it was spotted by news helicopters. It was driving very fast on the highways there in L.A. Simpson called 911 from the vehicle and police traced the location of that call. And the Bronco was being driven, not by Simpson, rather one of his close friends, Al Coling. By 6.45 that night, police had caught up with the Bronco. Cowling leaned out the window of the car and, and told police that Simpson was in the back seat with a gun pointed to his head, and he would kill himself if police did not back off. So this is turning into a scene real quick. Jamie, do you remember... Uh, like seeing this police chase on TV the night that it was happening. Do you, were you able to watch it live that night? Yeah, man, I can still see it in my head. You can still see the the aerial views of the Bronco, how it was kind of the only vehicle on that road and just how eerie it felt and knowing that, I mean, at this point he's fleeing. Everybody assumes he's guilty and it's OJ, man. It's It's such a huge story and I think everybody was kind of glued to that. I remember my mom was in the hospital and we were there to visit her. And instead of checking in with her and seeing how she was doing, we all were kind of watching the TV in the hospital room, watching this Bronco go down the interstate. I'll never forget that. Anyway, police gave the Bronco some distance, but kept pursuing it. Jamie was only going like 35 miles an hour. So close to 30 police vehicles were pursuing this Bronco. And again, you can, you can see the video of this. I still remember watching the Bronco with some distance and then like just a huge line of police behind him. Media outlets were chasing the vehicles and had helicopters hovering to provide a live feed. 
to a, a really an international audience. There was millions of people watching this. By the time the chase ended, most of them had to stop and refuel because this lasted a while. Simpson's former football coach, John McKay, went to the radio because police knew what station they were listening to. And on the radio, he pled with Simpson to not kill himself. One of the case's initial detectives had Simpson's cell phone number, and he was able to call Simpson during the pursuit. Simpson apologized to the detective and said that he deserved to die and that he wanted to be with Nicole. Jamie, thousands of people had gathered along the highways and overpasses in the track of this pursuit, and there were people cheering, and it seemed like they were cheering for Simpson to make an escape. Do you remember that part? Yeah, it was. this was in a time around the L.A. riots, and tensions were high in L.A., so they saw this guy as a, a kind of a hero for the black community, and they didn't want to believe he was guilty. So there were a lot of people that were on his side of this and just kind of wanted police to leave him alone. At about 8 o'clock that night, Simpson told police via his cell phone that he would surrender but that he first needed to speak to his mother. So the chase ended soon afterwards at Simpson's estate. Simpson peacefully surrendered. There were over 27 SWAT members there, and they were able to apprehend him. Now, despite the huge numbers of law enforcement, Simpson spent nearly another hour uh, surrounded in his Bronco. So it wasn't like he pulled up and they got right out. He spent another hour in the Bronco before he was apprehended. At 8.50, hours after the chase began, Simpson left the vehicle holding a family photo, and police watched as he went inside the house. Police knew his intentions as he had been in contact with the police negotiators while inside the vehicle. Inside, he had a glass of juice and called his mother. Jamie, like, I feel like if it was me, I would have got shot if I tried to go into the house. Like, but they seem to be cool with this. Why? Why? Why is that? Well, if if they had really negotiated it and they felt like this was their best way of apprehending him without an incident and they knew his intentions, I can certainly see letting that happen. It's not like they were just sitting in their cars. Like they were around. They were making sure that he really did walk in the house and that people were with him. So I felt like this was all predetermined. So I think looking at it that way makes more sense. If he had just gotten out and sprinted in his house, I think this is a completely different story. Uh, I, I'm going to disagree with you there, brother, and I love you. But if I'm a cop, you know, you might tell me that's your intentions, but I never know. You might have like a AK-47 setting beside your front door. And when you walk in, you're going to turn around and blast some of us as an effort to get us to shoot you since you're clearly suicidal. I, I don't love this decision and I would have never let it happen if I were in charge, but well, going I'm back, not, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> going back to what you said earlier, like with the people cheering for like this, things were tough right now for, for everybody in LA and the police were under a lot of heat already. So them taking him down at that point, I think would have escalated a lot of situations that they didn't want to see escalate. So I think this is as much of a political move as it is anything. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not saying it was the right move, but I, I get their reasons for making it. Sure. So while he's inside, this gave time for some of his attorneys to arrive at the house, and they were finally able to convince Simpson to give himself up peacefully to the police because they were all around his home anyway. 
inside the vehicle, police found some odd things, in my opinion. They found $10,000 cash, a loaded three fifty seven Magnum, a passport, clothes, family photos, and this is the interesting piece to me, fake beards, presumably for some kind of disguise. Uh, I I remember a lot of details about this case. I don't remember them finding fake beards in his Bronco. Of course, Simpson was arrested and was booked, and the bail was set for $250,000. You and mentioned that's. Yeah, you I'm mentioned sorry, go ahead. not remembering things. Like, I, in case people don't know, TNT did a mini series on this that was super well done. The only, there were a lot of big time actors in it. I think Travolta was. Robert Shapiro, Ray Romano played Robert Kardashian. Like it was really well done. And ESPN did, I think what amounted to a 10 hour documentary. Like it was longer than the last dance that won an Academy award about this whole thing. And I've watched all that thoroughly with like all of my attention on it. And we're reading through this and there are still things where I'm like, really, I don't remember that. So there's just so many details here that it's impossible to capture everything. Yeah, this is one of those stories that like everybody knows what happened to OJ, but there are little nuances to it that, you know, over the years have kind of been forgotten about. There's a lot of people that have covered it, but I think it's one that we have to have covered because it's one that we remember from our childhoods. I think it's a uh, it's one that I'll never forget just because of uh all the publicity it got. And then again, my dad recording every day of the trial, which seemed to last for 10 years. I don't know. It yeah. was a long time. We're going to talk more about that next week. Yeah. Let me tell you some things I do remember from it that we, we didn't get to hear a lot more about OJ's background. For example, he refused to participate in any type of civil rights uh, stances. It was around the time of his career when Muhammad Ali was taking a stance when uh, Malcolm X was uh, making a push for uh, that portion of the civil rights movement. And OJ refused to participate in that. And he, in a lot of ways, would, like, I feel like that documentary talked about him telling people that he didn't want to be black because he thought it would limit his opportunities. So as much as the black community was rallying around him, those that knew him knew that he was wanting to represent something else. So, even within himself, there was this racial tension. I mean, and like I, this was early nineties. I remember this being one of the first famous interracial couples that I, cause Nicole Brown Simpson was white that I remember. So there are all these details of his background and his, his life views that kind of set the stage for like a, uh, like a mini representation of what's happening throughout LA. And yeah, I, it, it escalated everything in a lot of different ways and really all across the country. Maybe my favorite thing um, that came out of the Bronco situation is on the TV show arrested development. They have this, uh, somebody's trying to buy a Ford escape and he was like, do you still sell Broncos? They're like, nah, we're trying to get away from the fleeing the scene vibe. Let's check out the Ford Escape. So I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> That's um, really funny. I don't think I've ever picked up on any kind of connection there with that name. But uh, I'll tell you what, like Ford Broncos were very popular in Tennessee where I grew up. And uh, I would kind of like low key, I would love to buy a white Bronco just because of the nostalgia. 
not saying that I love what happened to Nicole and Ron. That's not at all what I'm saying. Just uh, it's a sweet looking truck and uh, well, it's kind of cool. They've come out with them again, but yeah, like the, I don't know. This is much of a, this case. Yes. There are details of a crime. That's why we're covering it. But the culture around it is what makes it to me. So amazingly intriguing. Um, I don't know what, like you remember where you were when you watched the car chase and you remember we we've covered like the uh, Menendez brothers trial and John Bonet and other really big crime stories around that time. But as far as media goes, this was the one, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it was like, it was at the time where there was like 24 seven news coverage. And I remember in my house growing up, you know that I didn't watch a lot of TV but during this time, like after the chase through the trial, like that is pretty much the only thing that was on my TV. Like we weren't watching movies. We weren't watching TV shows. We were watching the news. When, when I say we, my father was watching the news to see what was going on. And, and I remember in particular the trial. I mean, it just seemed like my dad would go to work. He would come home. He might say hello to us, but then he would put on the tape and watch it for hours and hours. So that, I mean, that was like his routine the entire time of this trial. And I think that he was not the only one doing that. I think America was just captivated by what was going on and, and seeing if they could make this thing stick. I think everybody knew he did it. I think it was just, can we prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he did it? And is he going to jail forever because of this? And, was kind of the sentiment I remember. And I feel like everybody made their mind up during the Bronco chase. Either you realize you thought he was guilty and fleeing, or you thought he was innocent and being unjustly chased. Like, I don't know how many people made their mind up during the trial, but the trial is almost its entire own story in itself. And that's why we're dedicating an entire episode to it next week. Yeah. And I was going to point out just the evidence that, you know, you said the police chase. Yeah, that that definitely makes you look very guilty. But the evidence that was found around the scene and in the Bronco and at his house, like all signs are a go. And I guess we were going to spend a lot of time talking about that next week. So I won't reiterate any of that right now. Yeah, this was more of a teaser than anything. I think we'll dig into the gritty details of everything next week uh, to share with you all kind of why things went the way they did and continue to be a a discussion of debate or a point of debate, I guess. So, uh, yeah, thanks for hanging out with us this week and we can't wait to share the rest with you next Tuesday. Guys, thank you all so much. If you don't care, please leave us a rating and a review over on iTunes. Talk about the show with your friends, share it on your social media. We would love that. And until next crime, this has been true crime cast. You've listened to True Crime Cast, distributed by Stoveleg Media. Check out stoveleg.com to find out more about your hosts and to find other podcasts to listen to. Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation.